Let's start out with a word of prayer, okay? Bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much for the gospel that heals everything, that you are the one who has been through every temptation that we face, and you know how to help those who are tempted. Lord, I pray that you will speak through me, that I will just be an empty vessel filled with your spirit, and that every person who comes here and every person who listens to this seminar will be blessed and will be in touch with you, that your spirit will speak to each heart. Thank you so much, Lord, for your love. Amen. All right, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nicole Parker. Um, I'm married to the most wonderful man in all the world, just in case you guys don't know him. His name is Alan Parker. He's back there. Right, honey? <laughs> um, we've been married for 13 years now, and we live in Collegedale, Tennessee. Um, he's a professor at Southern, and I'm a biblical counselor, although mostly I'm a stay-at-home homeschooling mom. And then in my spare time when I have it, I'm trying to do what I can to advance the work of the gospel everywhere that I have an opportunity. My mom is also here today, too, right over there, Linda Crozier. So glad that she could be here today, too. And I'm glad that every one of you could be here. Thank you so much for coming out. I'm encouraged to see how many people want to know how to help the gospel spread to people in their hearts and minds and not just help people to be healthy in their bodies. You know, we as Seventh-day Adventists are famous for our health message. We have a tremendous message that makes such a difference, giving people longer, healthier lives, clearer minds and so many blessings. But if we have clear minds and we don't know how to deal with the emotional pain of living in a sinful world, we still have far to go, don't we? And God wants to free us in every way. He wants us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And he said that he binds up the brokenhearted. That's a process, not an event, right? You don't read about Jesus going to a blind man and putting bandages on him and saying, come back in three weeks, right? We tend to think of biblical healing as an event. Jesus touched people and they sprang up and said, I'm healed. And that does happen, both in emotional healing and in physical healing. But it's often the exception and not the rule. Because God knows that if he binds us up in a process of healing, in the process he binds our hearts to him. That process of learning how to lean on Christ and let him be the center of our hearts, our lives, our identities is the process that makes us realize the gospel really works. So often healing of the physical body, when we have, especially when we've made a mess through our sinful habits, it's a process, losing that weight, getting rid of those cigarettes, whatever. These things are processes. And emotional healing is also a process. So what I'm sharing today, I'm not saying this is what has worked for me and now I'm free of everything, every struggle, every problem. I'm saying this is what is working for me and what is working for the people that I share it with. This is how the gospel works to set people free from the power of sin in so many ways. You see, we as a church have bought into what the world says about healing. It says if you have a physical problem, you should see a medical doctor, right? And there's something certainly very valid to that. When my husband was dealing with a very difficult diagnosis, we didn't just pray and expect that God would make everything go away. We had to do what we could to get physical healing for physical problems. If you have a spiritual problem, the world says, you need to see a pastor. And that's great, right? But if you have an emotional or psychological problem, our modern culture says, well, you ought to see a psychologist or a counselor. 
Now, there's something to that as well, isn't there? I mean, I am a counselor. I call myself a counselor, and I have a master's in biblical counseling. But biblical counseling is very different than traditional counseling. And when a person says, I'm going to counseling, I myself as a counselor often go, oh dear, what does that mean? Because counseling often does more harm than good. Um, and I know some people are hesitant to go to a counselor because either they think, well, that's just a bunch of secular hobbledygobble, all I need to do is pray, or they say, you don't go to a counselor unless you have really serious issues. Maybe you're crazy, you know? I don't want to tell anybody I'm going to counseling. But biblical process says that we should get counsel, right? Where two or three are gathered, we can pray more effectively. And when we need counsel, look at the kings in the Old Testament. Didn't they always surround themselves with counselors? Other people, more than one mind, is very helpful in being able to discern the will of God. We all have blind spots as human beings, both through inherited and cultivated tendencies toward evil. We need one another. We need others to help us. And the best counselors are actually those who love us and know us well. That's why, as a church, every one of us should be biblical counselors. Biblical counseling is something that helps people so much, helping them understand how to apply the gospel to their lives. Now, when I say go to a counselor when you have a problem, I do not mean, you know, biblical counseling is going to solve everything. There are organic mental illness issues, for sure. You know, schizophrenia, bipolar, there, there are many diagnoses that have organic roots or organic influences in this situation. When a person's depressed, I don't automatically just say, you come to me for depression, all right. What's going on in your heart spiritually? That's gonna be one of the things I examine, but I'm also going to say, have you gone to a doctor? Have you had your B12 levels checked, your vitamin D? How much sleep are you getting? You know, going without sleep can make you depressed. Having a hormonal issue may make you depressed. And that depression may not be a spiritual issue. It may be a physical health issue. So I'm not discounting the power of medicine or the importance of having medical help with dealing with some issues. But what I am saying is what typically happens, even with organic mental illness issues, is the spiritual problems exacerbate them. The more you have a natural tendency toward, say, if you grew up not having any control of your world and you made a vow as a child, someday I will have control. You may be a perfectionist. Now, if you have an organic issue that adds to that, you may end up with obsessive compulsive disorder. But the spiritual issue is already influential. And while a person may have or may not have organic issues that are leading to some of their um, mental or emotional issues, the spiritual aspect always needs to be examined. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more as we go on. Here's how you can discern some things about choosing a counselor. If you do decide you need to go into counseling, a secular counselor, their typical approach is let me be God for you. In other words, the secular approach says let's just pretend God isn't there, whether we believe he is or not, and I will do for you what God is supposed to do for you. Right now, what's in style in secular counseling is unconditional positive regard. So it's based on Carl Rogers' theory that basically people have the answers deep within themselves. And your job as a counselor is to help people dig deep within themselves and find the answer. So your questions end up being something like, how did that make you feel? And what do you think you should do? Now that may do some good for some people because many people do already know deep inside, I need to talk to that person about the issue I have with them. 
But many people also go to that kind of counseling and they come out with, as one of my friends went to a counselor to get through the problem that he had been cheating on his wife and the counselor persuaded him, you know what, follow your heart. So he left his wife and children. Counseling doesn't always teach you to follow your heart in wise ways. There are also people who go to a counselor and the counselor just gets them into a system. Every week they have to come back and spill their guts about how much they hate everything their parents did to them growing up. And then every week they have to do this and the longer they go through that process, the more desperately they need it because it's so cathartic. I got there and I was just so angry and so stressed and then I spewed for an hour and I feel such relief now. I've got to go back next week. This is how people get to the point where they have to be in counseling for the rest of their lives, which is great if you're a counselor and you just want a secure income because you, you have just created a group of people who think they cannot live without you. <clears throat> but it's practically, let me be for you what only God can actually be for you, the one who knows you deeply and loves you unconditionally and accepts you just the way you are. Counselors cannot do that for others. Christian counseling is often let me help you and if you like we can involve God. I once did as one of my assignments a survey of Christian counseling magazines versus biblical counseling magazines to see what the difference was. It was very illuminating for me. You see Christian counseling magazines, if I sum up everything that I found in those magazines, it pretty much went like this. We do everything that secular counseling does just as well as secular counseling does. Plus, we even offer the optional gospel component if you want it. We're not going to push it, but it's right there, and we'll give it to you if you want it. Now, when I say that I'm making a generalization, there are lots of people who call themselves Christian counselors who do more biblical counseling. There are people who call themselves biblical counselors who probably do something more like what I'm calling Christian counseling here. But a typical Christian counselor has been through a Christian counseling program that also relies heavily on the um, Carl Rogers philosophy that... We just have to give people unconditional positive regard. Now, unconditional positive regard is one aspect of what God gives us. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. God does regard us with unconditional positive regard. But he tells us, but you have a sin. And the sin is going to lead you to death. And you need to get rid of it. You need to confront it. Let me help you. The gospel is not an optional part of biblical counseling. It is the heart and soul of it. So a biblical counselor is going to say to you, let's examine how the gospel applies to your situation. Biblical counseling then is a different category of counseling than secular counseling or even what's traditionally called Christian counseling. And again, Christian counselors, you may go to somebody and say, are you a biblical counselor? They'll say, I'm a Christian counselor. They may be doing what I would call biblical counseling. So I'm not saying these are hard and fast categories that nobody who calls themselves a Christian counselor is going to give you biblical principles. But you want to be cautious to make sure that what they're offering you is actually the gospel is the thing that's going to cure you, not me listening to you week after week. What is biblical counseling then? Biblical counseling I would define as helping people apply the gospel to the difficult situations of daily life. Now when you think of biblical counseling that way, what actually is an aspect of ministry that's not biblical counseling? Isn't preaching helping people apply the gospel to the difficult situations of daily life? How about when you sit down with your coworker to eat lunch and they say, oh, I just had the most horrible morning with my husband. I really wish I'd never married this man. How do you offer that person encouragement? How do you give them 
a boost toward living biblically. Don't you biblically counsel them? You're going to help them through biblical counseling. Or you might do the more Christian counseling thing and say, man, that's rough. He must be a real jerk. And then wait and see if they find the answers within themselves where they say, you know, I know I need to pray more about it. And then you can pounce on that and help them with it. No, you, can, you have to listen to people, tune into them, help them understand that you care. Remember, Jesus mingled with people as one who desired their good. He ministered to their needs, won their confidence, then bade them follow me. This is the pattern for biblical counseling as well. Anyone who is in ministry is doing biblical counseling in some way or another, or else they're doing non-biblical counseling. That guy is a jerk. You should just leave him, right? Non-biblical counseling may come out of our mouths or biblical counseling may, but we are going to counsel. All of us counsel. Christians, non-Christians, everyone counsels. The question is, is our counsel biblical? And if we are Christians, if we're really followers of Christ, we must be biblical counselors. It's the calling of every Christian. If you want to read more about this topic, I would encourage you to read the book Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by Paul Tripp or um, How People Change. Who is that? David Powlison, I think, wrote that. I'll have a list of some resources at the end that I recommend so you can get more information on this. But the bottom line is every one of us is called to be a biblical counselor because biblical counseling is helping people apply the gospel in their lives. That's ministry. Why do we need biblical counseling? The book Counsels on Health, now that we have tons of counsel as Seventh-day Adventists about this, but I'm just going to mention a few. Counsels on Health, page 344, says the condition of the mind affects the health to a far greater degree than many realize. Grief, anxiety, discontent, remorse, guilt, distrust, all tend to break down the life forces and to invite decay and death. Sickness of the mind prevails everywhere in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 444. Nine-tenths of the diseases from which men suffer have their foundation here. Councils on Health, page 349 says, But few realize the power that the mind has over the body. A great deal of the sickness which afflicts humanity has its origin in the mind and can only be cured by restoring the mind to health. You get that? You can put people on their weight loss programs and stop smoking programs and give them cooking schools and take them to prophecy seminars. But what's going on in their minds, the brokenness that comes from broken hearts, is going to hold them back from really being able to give themselves to the Lord fully. Councils on Health, page 349 says, A sore, sick heart, a discouraged mind needs mild treatment, and it is through tender sympathy that this class of minds can be healed. If their minds can be directed to the burden bearer and they can have faith that he will have an interest in them, the cure of their diseased bodies and minds will be sure. So why do we need biblical counseling? Secular counseling and the science of the study of the mind, psychology, has a lot of great stuff. While psychology can help us understand much about how the mind works, it cannot heal spiritual problems without Christ. To expect it to do so is living as an atheist. God is the one who heals the broken in heart and binds up their wounds. And remember that binding up is a process, not an event. That's Psalm 147, verse 3. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life, Proverbs 4.23. Everything in Scripture is focused on the heart. The heart is the place that everything flows from. Having healthy bodies is wonderful, but it's powerless to transform us unless it's just a channel 
that our bodies can be used to reach our minds so God can speak to us. And Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The Bible, when it speaks of the heart, it's a, it's a difficult thing to define, but it's talking about the wellspring of your life, the very depths of who you are, of what you do, of why you do it, of who you worship. That's what the heart is about, and that's what biblical counseling addresses. Now, physical healing and emotional healing work on exactly the same principles. This is the thing that will be perhaps more helpful to you than anything else you hear today. If you can think of it this way, physical healing and emotional healing work on the very same principles. Take, for example, um, last year I sprained my ankle very badly, too. I had this huge lump. It looked like I had half an egg underneath the skin on my ankle. It was very, very bad. And I was on crutches for several weeks. When I went to the emergency room to check this out, they thought it was broken. So we did x-rays, and after a long time waiting and evaluating everything else, they came back and they said it's sprained. It actually would be better if it were broken at this point because the tissue damage is so huge that it's going to be more difficult to heal than if it were just a break, a bone, instead of all this tissue ripped apart. But what do you think the doctors told me to do? We're going to lance your ankle now and cut out all the infection? We're going to amputate your leg? No, what did, what did they tell me to do with the sprain? Rest, stay off it, put ice on it, give it a break, right? Many emotional wounds that people go through can be dealt with very similar to a sprain. For example, grief. When someone has died, or when a relationship has been damaged beyond repair. There's a process of grief that goes on. And you have to kind of take the pressure off of yourself. You know, many people, because it's not a physical wound, but an emotional wound, they expect themselves to be able to function just as well as if they weren't grieving. What would have happened if I had hopped up in the emergency room and said, thanks guys, but now that I know it's not broken, I know I'm just gonna walk on it, I'm gonna keep walking on it, and eventually my sprain will get better because I've prayed. <laughs> I'd still be limping, wouldn't I? And I'd probably have a much more severely damaged ankle than I did. Many people handle grief the same way. And this is a central part of why when someone has been abused as a child and they've never been allowed to grieve through the process, to go through what it is that they actually lost, that they go through life crippled, continually trying to walk on that sprained ankle, continually overreacting to situations and everyone goes, what is wrong with her? Every time that happens, she just blows up. Goodness, let's take her out of leadership in the church. What she needs is to be able to grieve biblically to get off of that, that sprained ankle, to be able to process, look, I went through something, I lost something, I need to let go, I need to allow the Lord to heal me. I'm going to talk more about that later on. Now, what if, on the other hand, I had broken that ankle? What would we have done to the broken ankle? We would have stabilized it. We would have made sure that it was in the right position, right? We don't want the bones to heal together wrong. We would have stabilized it and then largely done the same thing, right? Stayed off of it, not pressured it. When a person is dealing with depression, for example, this is one, one situation in which depression tempts us to think unbiblically. When a person is depressed and they come to you and say, I'm so depressed, you need to help them make sure that this is set correctly. What's causing your depression? 
Are you thinking biblically? Well, I just look at my whole life and I'm a failure. Nobody loves me. Are they actually thinking biblically? No, because who loves them? Jesus Christ gave his life for them. This person is loved. Are they living in full surrender to him? If so, then their lives are not a failure. If not, then they need to come into surrender to him and then they're living as a success, as a precious treasure of God. You cannot be useless, unlovable, and worthless. You are priceless in the eyes of God. Now, now if I take another example, one time when I was uh, 17, I was playing softball and I ran up on this pile of boards and jumped down on the other side onto a board because the softball was over there. When I landed, there was this neat little nail sticking straight up out of that board and everybody cringes, right? I landed on a crunch. I can still hear the sound of that nail going into my foot. And I couldn't get my foot off the nail, but I could reach the softball. So I did. I grabbed the softball, I threw it back into the field, and then I managed to get my foot off that nail. Well, the nail had gone so far into my foot that it bruised the top of my foot, but it didn't go through. And as I was, I was in academy at the time, and the next morning I had to get to class, I had to get to work, and I ignored that foot mostly. I was afraid people were going to think I was trying to get attention if I talked about how badly it hurt. Some of the guys had volunteered to go get some medicine for me or to help me walk, and I was just afraid people are going to be thinking I'm trying to get attention for myself here. So I just made the best I could progress through classes, through work. Within a couple of days, that wound where the nail had gone in healed over. But there was a raging infection inside of my foot. And within a few days, I was in so much pain, I literally could not stop the tears coming out my eyes. I went to the doctor. The doctor said, well, looks like you've got an infection there. He lanced the wound, but he couldn't get deep enough to really get it out. Gave me some oral antibiotics. I went home taking my pills, hoping for the best, assuming I'm going to get better. Surely I'm going to get better. Healed over again, but the infection didn't go away. Eventually, when I ran out of oral antibiotics, the pain just became so intense, I couldn't take it any longer. And by the time I got to the doctor, he took one look at me and said, we need to get you into the hospital. You could lose that foot. Into the hospital I went on IV antibiotics for a couple of days, and even that didn't fully kill the infection. I, that foot ached all the next year. Then a year after that, I happened to go into the hospital for appendicitis, and finally those antibiotics cured my foot. What was wrong with my approach to this infection? I covered it up, I pretended it wasn't there, I didn't take it seriously, and why did I ever pay any attention to it initially? Because it hurt. Why did I actually get help eventually? Because it hurt. If it hadn't hurt, I wouldn't have done anything about it, and I would have lost my foot or perhaps died, right? But because it hurt, the pain saved my life. When a person is going through intense emotional pain, there is a reason for it. The reason may be unresolved pain from the past that they need to grieve through. The reason may be present sin, that they're living in self-focus. But there's a reason for that pain. Now, some pains are just going to be there all of our lives. You lose your father, you lose your mother, you love that person so deeply, they're gone, it's going to ache forever. That may be something like an arthritis kind of pain. It's going to be there with you. And its purpose is to make you long for heaven. Mm -hmm. 
but other kinds of pain may be pain that God is using to tell you there's something that needs to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's something you need to admit to yourself that you lost. There's something you need to allow me into your heart in a deeper way so that you can overcome. God has a plan when he allows pain. Physical healing and emotional healing work on exactly the same principles. When someone comes to you in emotional pain, help them understand what kind of pain they're actually dealing with. Then you know how to treat that pain. And usually you're going to find it's a combination of things, right? It's not going to be just, I'm going through depression because I have a hormonal imbalance. That hormonal imbalance is tempting them to think in unbiblical ways. What hurts hearts? I put things into three separate categories. There are sins that are committed against us. There are sins that we commit. And then there are things that are just the result of living in a sinful world. The woman who is in pain because her husband is leaving her because he's addicted to porn or he has another woman or something like that, she's in tremendous pain. And it's a sin that's being committed against her. She may or may not have had anything to do with this situation. That sin is going to keep causing her pain though, right? Sins we commit. Maybe there's a guy who is struggling with his own addiction to pornography and isn't willing to admit to himself about some of the losses that he suffered as a child. And therefore, he has this uncontrollable drive towards sin because he's handling things unbiblically. He's not finding the victory that God wants him to have. And of course, it's not just past sins that were committed against him that are causing him to sin. It's his own sinful choices now, right? He may have more pressure on him because of sins committed against him, but ultimately, he's in charge now, right? He chooses to surrender to Christ, or he is overcome by the power he has chosen instead of Christ. Then there are things that are just the result of living in a sinful world. You know, the, the mother who is watching her daughter die of cancer. It's not the mother's sin, not the daughter's sin. It's the result of living in a sinful world. Sometimes these factors all interact, and it can be difficult to figure out what's really at the root of this here. But we have to establish in our minds, what can we change? What are we incapable of changing? Put the things that we're incapable of changing into a category where we surrender them to God and live in peace with them. Put the things that we are capable of changing into the category of we need to actively work on these things with Christ. And we'll find ourselves putting our energy into the right things instead of the wrong things, spending all of our time grieving over something we're powerless to change instead of actively letting the Lord work on the things that he wants to use to sanctify us and transform us into his image. When a person is struggling with a sin that's committed against them, you might, um, let's see, can I have a volunteer? Somebody want to come up here and be an illustration for me? You look like a good volunteer. <laughs> okay. Let's say that I, as a sinner, I have a sword here, and I take this sword and I gash you in the arm. Okay. Who's hurting now? Me. You're hurting now. Whose fault is it? Mine, right. Everybody clear on that? Mm -hmm. She hurts for my sin. Now, let's use this in a spiritual situation. If I've sinned against her, she's hurting. But what about if she now rubs something in it, you know, she grabs some dirt off the ground, she rubs it in her wound, and she begins causing it to fester? Whose fault is it now that she's hurting? It's hers. It's still mine too, right? but it's hers because she's participating in this process. Okay, thank you. What happens when someone sins against us 
is that we live under the powerful temptation to sin in response. You see, when the physical body deals with an issue, we have what's called the immune system, all these wonderful white blood cells that go and assault whatever it is that's going wrong. And they may be able to take care of it all by themselves, right? So if I gash her arm with my sword, I've caused her pain, but if she refuses to allow herself to participate in the sin process, that gash will heal, and over time, yeah, she'll hurt, she'll go through a lot of pain maybe, but eventually she'll have a scar there, and when somebody else comes along and says, you won't believe what happened to me, this person that I trusted came along and gashed me with a sword, she can roll up her sleeve and she can say, you know what, I went through that once too, and here's how the Lord healed me. You, you can be free too. You see, God uses even our wounds as sometimes our most powerful tools to help heal others who are wounded the same way. God can use our pain. The problem is when we commit sin in response. And you see, this is the chronic problem of sinful humanity. This is why secular counseling so seldom actually helps in a situation because we're natural sinners. We don't like letting our immune system work. We don't like letting the gospel work to set us free from that sin. Somebody hurts us, we want to resent. We want to hurt them back. We want to cause someone else to suffer because we've suffered unjustly. Our sinful responses are the cause of the majority of our pain because when I say, when I stepped on that nail, that wound was a very temporary wound, right? If it hadn't gotten infected, if the sin situation hadn't crept in, because infection symbolizes sin in the emotional healing process. If infection hadn't crept in, I could have healed from that very quickly, right? I would have limped for two or three days and I would have been fine after that. Might not have even remembered it all these years later. But because infection came in, everything changed. And this is why abuse and neglect and other things like that so dramatically affect people because they trigger the process of emotional damage caused by sins of response. When you, you take the secular counseling approach, suppose that um, a person comes to a random secular doctor and says, I've got this sword wound in my arm. The doctor examines it and says, well, looks like you've got a wound. Let's just keep checking on it and see how it does. That might help if it doesn't get infected, right? If the person doesn't allow sin to develop, it may be fine. Let's take a Christian approach. The person comes to the Christian counselor and says, I've got this sword wound and it looks like it's infected. I'm hurting a lot. The Christian counselor says, well, that looks pretty painful. Let's hope it doesn't get infected. If it does, let me know. So then over time, let's say with both of those, this wound gets infected. The secular counselor is gonna go, well, looks like that's infected. Let's cut it open, lance the wound. So they lance the wound. He says, all right, we, got, we drained all that pus out. Come back next week and let's see how it's doing. Is that gonna solve it? It may help. It probably will help a lot with the pain, right? but you haven't put an antibiotic into it. You haven't started assisting in the process of healing. Now the Christian counselor may come along and do the same thing. Say, well, it looks like you've got an infection there. Let's lance it and hope for the best. We can offer antibiotic if you would like it, but y'all leave that up to you. 
Well, that may help, and you may get painful, you know, enough pain, you go, well, I think I really need something, anything, anything that will help. Okay, the Christian counselor gives you an optional gospel that may or may not be powerful depending on what their belief system is. Or the biblical counselor. When you come to the biblical counselor and say, I've got this sword wound, and it's hurting, and it's, you know, it's festering, the biblical counselor says, we're going to have to lance that. And you're going to need some antibiotics. We're going to have to deal with that intensely. But if we deal with it well, you should be over it within a few weeks, maybe a few months if it's a very bad wound or if it's been infected for a very long time, right? So with options one and two, you're likely to keep coming back to the doctor to get it lanced every week indefinitely, right? Especially if you don't have an immune system. Because remember, we as sinners tend to suppress our immune system. That's who we are. We take the sugar of the devil all the time. We do everything we can to suppress the gospel. I don't have to forgive him. Don't you know what he did to me? Everything in us says, I don't have to forgive. I don't have to let go. I have rights. We cling to sin as if it's our very lifeblood. So what happens when your random sinner who's got this infected wound in their arm comes to the counselor because you know what let me tell you the secret of counseling when people come to you for counseling they don't actually want to get rid of their wound they don't actually want to be healed what they want is for the pain to go away they think they want to be healed but what they want is for the pain to stop if you can help the pain stop or at least come down to a manageable level they don't need the gospel. They're actually very happy with their sinful patterns. It feels great to be able to live in unforgiveness, to be able to say, I'm too depressed to go out and do anything. I have a health issue, and so I just have to sit home and watch TV all day. You don't understand. Right? We think we want healing, but what we actually want is freedom from pain. But God has a much higher plan for us. So when you counsel people, guaranteed, they would like you to just help them not be in pain anymore. And if you can help get rid of their pain, they don't want to deal with their sin. You have to confront them biblically and say, no, here's what really matters. Jesus wants you to come to him for healing and freedom. You see, pain is not the enemy, biblically. Sin is the enemy, right? Pain is the tool God uses to transform human beings into his image. From the very beginning, God didn't want pain. He told Adam and Eve, stay in the garden, obey me, trust me, this will all work great. And they said, I got a better idea. What if we tried it our own way? So God said, I'm so sorry you did that. You're going to have to have pain and hard work now to help you understand why sin was a bad idea so that someday you will be able to say, man, we don't like the world where we have to have pain and hard work. We'd really like to get out of this planet and go live with you. And we want to live by the law of love instead of the law of selfishness, the law of sin that has been driving us to corruption here in this world. So pain is not our enemy. Sin is our enemy. And pain is God's tool to transform us into his image. God wants to use our pain to help us to overcome sin. Yeah, honey, can you come and fix my computer? When, when do we think that pain is the enemy? When we're hurting. People who are hurting always tend to think that pain is their problem. So what happens when your random Bible study comes to church with you and says, oh, I'm so glad to find this church where people actually care about me. You've been so nice to me. I really appreciate it. You know, here's what I'm going through. 
and then they start. And they start spilling their pain on you, right? What's going to happen when you start telling them, here's what you need to do to get rid of that pain? What do they typically say? I don't want that, right. You mean I'm gonna have to give up all these oily, sugary foods that I love? I can't drink pop all the time? You're telling me I have to lose these things if I wanna lose weight? You don't understand how much I need my sugar and oil and soda pop, <laughs> right? But our culture and the world and practical life has already taught them scientifically, you don't give up these things, you're gonna die at age 50. And you're gonna live a very miserable, overweight, uncomfortable life between here and there. Do you want that? So natural law teaches them, you keep eating this way, you're gonna keep feeling this way. You've got a boost in the right direction. When you do biblical counseling, the pain is invisible. The problems are invisible largely. And so you have to do a process of helping people come to the point where they realize they need healing. They need to be transformed not by you listening to them all the time because the worldly counseling model has told them the thing that will make you feel better is if somebody listens to you week after week and makes you feel better. And it works wonderfully. The people who go back to that secular doctor every week and he lances the wound, wow, it feels so much better. And they, if you tell them you need to stop going to that doctor, what are they gonna say to you? You don't know how much it hurts until I go to him and he releases all that pus and garbage from my wound. I have to go to that doctor. They feel this is the thing that will help them. And until you help them understand, no, the gospel will work. You need an antibiotic. When the antibiotic starts working to boost your immune system, because all of us have within our minds a knowledge that we need to go to God, right? Romans tells us this, every person has the law accusing or excusing within themselves. All of us have a grain of truth within us that tells us selfishness is the wrong way, love is the right way. The problem is when we live in a world that says you don't have to live by the law of unselfishness, you have rights and you've been hurt. You can go back to this doctor all the time and get him to make you feel better. If your pain is kept down to manageable level, you don't need the gospel. And you see, the deadly thing about counseling out in the world is that sometimes the painkiller takes care of the pain. You know, the antidepressant may take care of the depression, then they don't need to deal with the spiritual issue that was exacerbating everything else. I'm not saying antidepressants are evil or dangerous or bad. They can be, but an antidepressant can also be helpful. It can boost a person up to the point where they're capable of facing the chaos and disaster they've made in their lives. They should be handled very carefully, but it's not the enemy. The painkiller is not the problem. The problem is that when we remove the pain, instead of dealing with what's causing it, we may end up taking away the headache so the person doesn't pay attention to the brain cancer. Now, why do we need emotional healing? As I'm going over some of this, I think it's, it's making more sense, hopefully. But I wanna kind of crystallize this. Why do we need emotional healing? Does God really care about whether we have emotional healing? He absolutely does because God defines himself in 1 John 4 as love. In other words, God is a relational God. And he's made us in his image as relational beings, right? So we live in a world where his law is being disobeyed all the time. What is God's law? What two principles underlie everything else in God's law? Love for God, love for man. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The whole law of God then is relational, right? And the majority of the pain that people are going to come to you for counseling about is relational pain. Pain that is caused by broken relationships. Our relationships are the most significant things in our world, which is an evidence all by itself that we are created in the image of a relational God, that we are not just evolved beings trampling on each other to try to reach the highest place. We live for something deeper, something richer, something more meaningful, because within us is written a relational law. God has told us, you must love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You must love your neighbor as yourself. If you do not, you are breaking relational law, and your life will continue unraveling until you allow me to start changing it. You know, how many of you have ever had a sweater that gets a snag and it starts unraveling? You've seen that happen before? And it just spreads, right? What happens when you put pressure on that sweater? It unravels a lot faster, doesn't it? You see, when I have just a tiny little hole in my sweater, I might be able to kind of tuck it under something, tie it together, hope for the best. Maybe it's not going to show up too much. But when you have a big snag and it starts spreading, what happens? You know I've got to do something about this. When people break relational law, the damage begins to spread. The more pressure you put on their lives, the more the damage spreads until the hole gets big enough they pay attention. Sin brings relational brokenness. It brings relational disaster. It is the very nature of sin to destroy relationships because sin is the transgression of a relational law, right? Love God first, love your neighbor as yourself. If all of sin is the transgression of that relational law, then sin is relational brokenness, right? And it results from relational brokenness. If I sever my connection with God, I am left looking desperately for some other idol to make me feel loved and worthwhile. I cannot help that. I cannot stop myself from doing that because I'm like a drowning person grasping for something, anything. We cannot swim. We have to have Christ holding us up as our life jacket, or we will desperately grab anything floating past. So God defines himself as a relational God. He defines himself as love. He is the one thing we need, the one thing that can make us secure in the knowledge we are deeply unconditionally loved by somebody who knows us to our very depths, to everything bad in us. And he says, you are priceless. All of that sin is just irrelevant to what you're worth to me. Internalizing that is the secret of overcoming sin. That belief in the love of God, because wasn't Lucifer's original sin that he stopped believing that God was love? He made an accusation. He said, there is no such thing as unconditional love, and God is not unconditionally loving. And when he severed by unbelief the first sin, he inevitably committed the second sin, pride. If I can say God is not that, then I am being, I'm able to stand in judgment of him. Pride and unbelief are the cycle at the heart of every sin problem. 
every sin problem is rooted in pride and unbelief. And when you repent, this is the problem when people come to you and they say, I'm so sorry, I keep going back and drinking, I don't know what to do about it. You can know this is a sin cycle, therefore it's rooted in pride and unbelief. All we have to do now is track it back to the pride and unbelief. Help this person to repent of the real problems, the real sins that are causing the fruit sins. Because these root sins lead to the fruit sins that they observe and then they keep going, Lord, I'm so sorry I went back and drank again. I'm so sorry I went back and drank again. But they're still living with the, I'm not worth anything. Nobody loves me, which is driving them to drink. And they're not repenting of those root sins that lead them to keep going back to the fruit sins. So when God defines himself as love, he is everything we need. Only by love is love awakened, right? So we can never actually learn to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength until we begin that process of believing that he is the one who loves us unconditionally. His love will awaken love in our minds. And then guess what? As we start believing he loves me, he loves me like that, knowing how rotten I am. Then the sweater begins to come back together. You see what I'm talking about? Sin is relational brokenness. It wreaks havoc in our relationships with God and with others. It unravels everything. Righteousness, then, is the reversal of sin, isn't it? Amen. Righteousness is the healing of relationships, the bringing back together, God undoing that unraveling, transforming us by the renewing of our minds. That's a process, not an event. It's a process, a lifelong process, and the Bible calls it sanctification. When we make that turn, we decide to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, because faith is the beginning of where everything good happens. Unbelief is the beginning of where everything bad happens, from Lucifer's sin to Eve's sin to every sin since then. Everything starts with, maybe God isn't really good. Maybe God doesn't really love me. Maybe this whole world is a mess and I'm just stuck in chaos. Unbelief will lead us to pride. I think I can find something that will make me feel loved. I'll find a relationship that will make me happy and loved. I will find a work that will make me feel like I'm worth something finally. And then we wonder why we get addicted. So God's law is relational. Most of the brokenness that we experience in this world is also relational. Even the brokenness like grief, which isn't something that necessarily is going to be gone until Jesus comes, but it's still, it's there as a brokenness to remind us of our need for the one relationship that will never fail us. How does abuse cause sin? Now, when we've defined sin this way as relational brokenness, breaking relationship with God is the initial sin that leads to all other sins, right? When I can't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I decide not to, then I'm powerless to love my neighbor as myself. I can neither love myself nor can I love anyone else because I've severed from the fountain of all love, right? So people try to, you know, the world tells you, you just got to love yourself. You just got to accept yourself. That's actually not true. That's trying to say, I am God. I can give myself enough love. We know how bad we are. And we know that we cannot possibly make ourselves good. In our very depths, we know that. So when God says, all your badness is irrelevant, that's when we start to have hope. I remember when I talked to a woman who had been a prostitute for many years. She had been a massage therapist slash prostitute slash a whole bunch of other exciting things. She told me her whole life story, all the drugs, all the alcohol, all the terrible relationships. At the end of it all, 
She said, so that's my story. And I said, so that's just stuff. That's not you. That's just stuff you did. It's just sin. And sin is actually kind of irrelevant to who you are in God's eyes. God says, you are my child. I died for you. You are worth everything to me. I was willing to give up ruling the entire universe for you. And she came back to me a week later. She said, that was amazing. When you told me that, when I told you everything that I'd done, and you said, so what? That's just sin. She, she realized, wow, is that what God's like? You see, abuse strikes at the heart of our ability to believe that God loves us. This is what's wrong with it. This is what's dangerous about abuse. It wrecks our picture of who God is. A person who has been abused as a child has a powerful temptation before them to believe God abandoned me. Why wasn't he there when I prayed and nothing good happened? Why didn't he rescue me? Maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe I'm worth nothing. Maybe he doesn't exist. Whatever lies the devil tells that person, they're all rooted in doubt about the character of God. And in, in the end, everything is about the character of God. Is he really love? Because if he's really love, everything else is going to work out. And if he's really not love, then our universe is in big trouble. Abuse wrecks our picture of who God is. It puts a temptation before us, a powerful temptation, not to believe in the love of God for me. And if only by love is love awakened, if I can't believe that he loves me, how can I love him back? I've therefore severed from the ability to believe in the love of God, the ability to love him. I'm therefore caught, trapped in sin. And until I can believe, nothing else good can happen. Now, all of us are trapped in unbelief. All of us struggle with this unbelief, this doubt about the character of God. Can he really be that good? What if he's not? This is the everlasting battle with sin right until Jesus comes. We'll be tempted to unbelief and its resulting sin, pride. God gives us a cycle of humility and faith. You notice how often those go together? Humility and faith are the cycle that heal us and make us able to live by the law of God. When I come to the point where I can believe that God is a God of love, then I can start believing in what God says about me. Because see, abuse also wrecks a picture of who we are. If God is not love, who can love me? If my father or my mother forsook me, who will take me up? We need the word of God to give us the power to believe there is somebody who loves me. You see, God put the family together for the purpose of teaching us about love. That was his whole purpose. He intended that two perfect parents would have perfect babies, and even as those babies were growing up and didn't even know that they had been created, they would be learning about love from day one, right? They would be nourished and taken care of and protected and loved, and those parents would never do anything wrong. So those perfect babies would grow up to be like their perfect parents, loving a God who is perfectly loving. But something happened. Adam and Eve sinned, and there's never been a perfect parent. So every parent, to some degree, wrecks their child's picture of who God is. Some profoundly. But I wreck my children's picture of who God is, too. Every person does. All of us participate in the process of sinning against people. 
and all of us are called to participate in the process of redemption, healing people, bringing righteousness everywhere we go. Just as the Lord does, he, he comes to us with healing in his wings, right? The son of righteousness. This is how he works in our hearts and our lives. Abuse wrecks the picture of who God is, it wrecks the picture of who we are, and it makes it harder for us to obey God's law. But if every person to some degree has their picture of God wrecked, that's actually good news, isn't it? God must have a plan for healing people from the effects of abuse, doesn't he? He must, or else the gospel won't work for any one of us. Because even if our parents treated us wonderfully, even if our parents were perfect, which none of us had perfect parents, but even if our parents were perfect, what about our pastors? What about our Sabbath school teachers? Or the teacher who tells us that we're worth nothing, who purposely is unjust to us? What about our friends who betray us? All of us are sinned against. All of us have messages flying at us from here and there and everywhere telling us, you're not loved. You're worthless. And the gospel has to undo that damage. God has a plan to undo the emotional damage that people go through from abuse, neglect, every kind of trauma that we go through in this world. We, we find, as counselors, this is a messy process, honestly. It's a messy process, learning how to believe, because it's the process of overcoming sin. Abuse is kind of like, it makes our lives into a minefield. When you deal with somebody who's been abused, you'll find they have trigger things sometimes that are unresolved. It's kind of like, you know, you're walking through this beautiful grassy field with your friend. Everything is great. We're having a wonderful conversation or maybe having a great time having a cookout in the backyard, you know, roasting hot dogs over the bonfire. And then something happens. Maybe their kid trips over something and they yell, why did you do that? You're so stupid. Whatever it is, a trigger, a trigger hits and the person's reaction to that trigger is not in proportion to the actual situation. You see, when our reaction to a situation is not proportionate to the actual situation we're dealing with, it's very often because there's a trigger. It's as if this minefield has a trip wire underneath. So there's a mine buried just under the ground, but deep under the ground is a wire that goes back to their childhood or to something else they went through. Maybe they were told by their boss at work that they didn't do things well, and in some way it assaulted them at the very depths of their identity. You know, if they're workaholics and everything in them, their identity is fastened to what they accomplish, and then someone says, you accomplish nothing, you're a failure, that's gonna be a tripwire. And when this person steps on it, boom! The reaction is not at all proportionate to the actual situation. Maybe somebody uses a word to describe them, like the word idiot. And that was something that they were called as a child. It sticks with them. You can call them something else, but don't call them an idiot because there's a tripwire that goes to that. And when that explodes, it explodes with all the power of all the things they haven't forgiven from their childhood onward. Can you see why God wants sometimes for those things to be exploded? Because when it explodes, we realize, whoa, there's something I need to forgive. We track that wire back to where it came from and disable that, and then guess what? We don't have to blow up constantly. We don't have to continually guard that, that wounded arm. Because you know what it's like when you have a, a wounded arm? Remember that we go back to that, that illustration of the sword cut in the arm, and everything that happens, you know, we're just we're trying to make sure, no, no, don't, don't shake that hand. I can't, I can't deal with that one. And then what does the Lord do? 
he comes to us and says, let me take a look at that arm. No, 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 actually, this one's fine. <laughs> I don't, you don't understand. This one would really hurt if you did anything to it. And he says, you're going to need surgery on that. Actually, without anesthesia. <laughs> and that's actually very much of how counseling often feels. Surgery without anesthesia. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants it. But all of us need it. And the Lord has promised he'll never give us more pain than we can actually handle. And that pain that he does allow us to go through will be for the purpose of setting us free. So that then when somebody comes along and says, I'd like to shake hands with you, we can reach out and say, sure, because my arm is healed. In fact, let me show you what God has done for me. This is what God wants to do in our hearts and our minds. And that's why he allows those tripwires to hit. And I'm sure as I'm talking about this, some of you are thinking of the tripwires in your mind. I wonder why I overreact to this and to that. They're there. And this is the beautiful thing about our God. He never stops sanctifying us. He keeps on reminding us morning by morning as we go to him and we hand our lives over and we say, Lord, what is it today you want to work on? He says, you know the way you talked to your daughter yesterday? You know the way you talk to your boss or the way you talked about that other person. You say, Lord, I've been talking about my boss that way for years. Yes, but today you were ready to deal with it. So today I convicted you. He gives us what we need to hear when we're ready to hear it. And he never gives us more than we can handle, but he generally doesn't let us just slide without any pressure at all because he loves us. You know, God doesn't give you the two pound weights to work out with at the gym. He says, no, 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 you're actually past that. <laughs> Let me give you the 50 pound weights. And we say, wait, Lord, <laughs> I like those two pound ones. They were really nice. <laughs> he says, actually, we're working toward the 80 pound ones. So work on the 50 for now because he wants us to be transformed. The more we see what Jesus is like, the more we're gonna wanna be like that too. It's just amazing to see what he's like, how beautiful he is. So what is our central sin problem? Every day, in some way, we buy the lies of autonomy and self-sufficiency, worship the creation rather than its creator. This is from Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 27. You see, that's the pride. Pride works in our minds to make us believe we actually aren't that bad. We could actually handle everything on our own without God. Satan says God is not who he says he is. And then, of course, he follows with, you are not who God says you are. But these are lies. They're lies, and ultimately, they're accusations against the character of God, that he is really not loving, that he's really not good. Everything is about the nature of God. If God is really who he says he is, and we can grasp that by faith, all the blessings of heaven unfold for us. Satan said, you shall not surely die. And that's how we got here in the first place, right? By exalting ourselves. He said, as God said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. God isn't good. You see it there? Ye shall be as gods. Think of what you can be if you sever belief in God and launch out on your own. Everything is centered in pride and unbelief. If the devil can get you to not believe that God is love, or if he can get you to redefine what love is, that God loves you if you do enough if you're perfect enough, then Satan wins. What is sin? Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 14 says, sin is the ultimate disease, the grand psychosis. Rebellion is the inborn tendency to give in to the lies of autonomy, self-sufficiency, and self-focus. Things like, I have the right to do what I want. I don't need to depend on or submit to anyone. I am all I need myself. I am the center of my world. 
I'll do whatever brings me happiness. I know these ring true for our minds because we're sinners. We have that systemic infection flowing through our bloodstream, popping up in infected wounds here and there. Anytime it, the devil has an opportunity and the Lord says, let me get it out. Let me lance that wound, put into you my spirit, and I will keep on transforming you by the renewing of your mind. See, when we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, everything good comes about. So the devil does everything he can to get us to veer off onto two sides. God doesn't love me or God won't take care of me could be categories that we could describe these as. God doesn't love me will lead you to depression. Who loves me? God won't take care of me is going to lead you to anxiety. If God's not going to take care of me, I'm going to have to step in and do what only God can really do, right? I'm going to control my environment. I'm going to make sure nothing bad happens to the people I love. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Ye shall be as gods, right? Now, when I put these two broad categories of depression and anxiety up there, I don't just mean things that you might call depression or anxiety. Some of us don't relate to those terms. But things like bulimia, idolatrous relationships, fantasy, pornography, self-mutilation, post-traumatic stress disorder, feeling worthless or feeling unlovable, all of these I would put in the category of the depression, the category of God doesn't love me. If God doesn't love me, then I'm going to escape to one or many things. And probably your addictions will just take turns. It may be movies for a while, then you get over the movie thing, then it's music for a while, then you get over the music thing, then it's a codependent relationship. I mean, codependency is just another word for idolatry. Anxiety could be a word that describes a huge family of issues. A few of them would be things like anorexia, control issues, legalistic perfectionism, phobias, anxiety attacks, fear of abandonment, post-traumatic stress disorder also fits here because different manifestations of the symptoms show different areas of unbelief about God. Obsessive compulsive disorder, believing we can earn love or worth. All of these things, you know, you can maybe start seeing how most of these things could fit in either category in some ways. They're kind of a blend of it's partly unbelief and partly pride, mostly pride, a little bit of unbelief, mostly unbelief, a little bit of pride. You know what I'm talking about? This, this is a cycle. Every sin is a cycle of those two factors, unbelief and pride, messing with my life. Now, one thing that you're going to find particularly crops up if you're dealing with counseling people very often is guilt versus shame. We, we live in a world where those two words are often used interchangeably, but I'm using them to describe two distinct experiences in the human life. Guilt is a message from God, okay? And shame is a message from the devil. Guilt and shame feel very similar. They are a sense of defilement, and it goes to the core of who we are. But guilt and shame have opposite effects in our lives. You could consider it that when conviction of sin comes to you, you respond in faith, it will be guilt. You respond in unbelief, it will be shame. And maybe that's confusing, but let me try to uh, distinguish between the two here. Guilt is a message from God that says sin is standing between us. Let's get rid of it so we can be close. Shame is a message from the devil. It says you are so sinful, God doesn't want to be close to you. Can you see the difference between those two? They feel very similar, this oppressive darkness, a conviction. 
but they have opposite effects in your life. One drives you to God, one drives you away from God. You can tell whether it's guilt or shame that's affecting your life by its effect upon you. Does it make you want to go to Christ or make you feel like there's no hope for you and you can't come to him? Guilt says sin is bad. Shame says you are bad. Guilt says there is hope. Shame says there is no hope for someone like you. Guilt says the defilement can be washed away or even the defilement doesn't exist. When a person has been abused, particularly sexually, there's a sense of defilement that stains to the very heart. The person feels, I am forever broken. I am forever not as good as others. But the gospel says that defilement doesn't even exist. Didn't Jesus say that? He said nothing that comes into a person, or in other words, that happens to a person, can defile him, but only what comes from within the person, and then he gives a list of sins. In other words, something that happens to you cannot defile you, no matter how defiled you may feel. It's just a lie of the devil. Only your own willing participation in the sin process can defile you, and that, anything that you have participated in, can be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? People who have been abused need to hear that central truth. And even people who have participated in the sin process. Shame, however, says the defilement is a permanent stain. Not even Jesus' blood can remove it. One of the biggest difficulties you'll face in counseling a person who has been abused is that they have been told that they are defiled by the life, by whatever has happened to them. The devil has told them, you are permanently defiled. But what do you do with a defilement that you didn't even participate in? You can't repent of it, can you? There's nothing you can do to bring yourself to the point where you feel clean. Some children who have been abused will compulsively wash their hands constantly or take baths. Um, people who have been through things like that, they'll, they may get into obsessive compulsive rituals to try to deal with their shame. What they need to know though is that they aren't actually defiled according to scripture. And that will set them free like nothing else can. Jesus said you can't be defiled by anything that happened to you. And anything that actually defiles you, as in your own participation in sin, because of course abuse does tempt us to sins of response, anything you've participated in can be washed away by the blood of Jesus. Guilt says repentance and confession are the only way out. But shame says you must atone for your sins or you can never be cleansed. Usually it will go back and forth between those two. This uh, shame and guilt will say, you know, first you've got to do something. Maybe you can do enough. If you can do enough, maybe you'll feel better. And then when you can't do enough, it's never mind. There's no hope for somebody like me. This is true particularly of sexual shame. Sexual shame, I just want to mention to you, when you deal with a person who has participated in sexual sin or who has had sexual sin committed against them, what happens is it's like a braid of sex and lust and shame all braided together in their minds. You know, when I make challah bread, I braid together three strands of dough and then it rises and then I bake it. When I bring it out of the oven, it's not three strands anymore, is it? Right, it's all one. But God is able to help people separate those out. It's a process, helping a person understand sex is not evil, lust is evil, shame is evil. But sex is good and pure, helping people discern and see that God has not condemned them for their longings for someone else to love them or for sex. It's not evil. That will be a process, helping a person deal with that. Now, what is addiction biblically? 
It is an attempt to find love or worth in someone or something other than God. It's a choice to worship someone or something other than God. It is the inevitable effect of a cycle of unbelief and pride. And bottom line, addiction is idolatry. Finding something in this thing instead of in God. Whether it's a person or a thing, whatever it is that we flee to instead of God, it inevitably is really self-disguised. Nobody gets into a codependent relationship because they really love the other person. It's always because they love what the other person did for them or does for them. Yes, he beats me, but he makes me feel like I'm actually the person who saves him. We always like to either be God to somebody else, I am the one who loves him and sees the value in him when nobody else does, or we want somebody else to be God for us. There are two categories of sin, biblically. In Jeremiah 2.13, it says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. When we forsake the fountain of living water, that's unbelief. We can't believe that God is who he says he is. Inevitably, we'll hew out broken cisterns. We'll try to find something else to be what only God can really be for us. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 67, says, Sin is much more than doing the wrong thing. It begins with loving, worshiping, and serving the wrong thing. When you have somebody come to you say, I, I feel so terrible, I've got this problem with porn or masturbation or thinking lustful thoughts, whatever it is that they're struggling with, help them understand it's loving, worshiping, and serving the wrong thing that leads you to this. It's a belief that God withholds good gifts that leads people to sexual addiction. God is holding something back from me. I want happiness. This would make me happy. When happiness is more important to me than holiness, I'm going to do whatever I think is going to make me happy. So the real problem is my mindset, not my actions. People repent of their actions so earnestly, but they haven't changed the mindset, and therefore they keep going right back to the same thing, like a dog going back to its vomit, right? <coughs> Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, page 68, goes on to say, whatever rules the heart will exercise inescapable influence over the person's life and behavior. And on page 71, it brings out the deepest issues of the human struggle are not issues of pain and suffering. Remember, those are the things that are going to bring people to you. But the issue of worship is the one that you need to help them confront because what rules our hearts will control the way we respond to both suffering and blessing. How much are we worth in the eyes of God? This is a picture of the Hope Diamond. It's worth an estimated 200 to 250 million dollars. Do you know why it's worth that much? Not worth that to me. You couldn't pay me to put that in my house. That would be scary. Can you imagine who would be breaking in next? But to somebody out there, they would pay 200 to 250 million dollars for it. Because of that, it's estimated to be worth that much. How much are we worth in the eyes of God? The life of the Son of God. There is no price in the universe that can even touch what you are worth, what I am worth. This is the root of finding healing and freedom from our addictions, from our abuse, from whatever it is we've been through. When we believe the love that the Father has for us, all good things come as a result. That's when we start loving him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's when we begin loving others as ourselves. That's when we realize how much God loves us. How much are we loved? You see, everyone has these two great thirsts in their minds for love and for worth. 
we cannot escape from those. We can only choose what we're going to find them in. Whatever you find your sense of love and worth in will be the thing you base your identity on, and you will worship it. You will worship God, or you will worship whatever you put in his place as the thing that is the foundation of your identity and worth. Now, we, we talked about how root sins and fruit sins are the things that people observe versus the things that are actually going on under the surface. You know, if I, if I see dandelions all over my yard, am I going to accomplish very much by going out and picking them? No. Now it's not all bad to get rid of those dandelions because what happens in two weeks if I leave all those dandelions all over? Instead of having 20, I'm going to have 20,000 dandelions, right? When a person comes to you saying, I'm struggling with these addictions, help them with the behaviors. That's a good thing to do. Help them, you know, pick the dandelions so they don't get more seeds. Help the person to stop the behavior that they're doing, but help them to address the roots. It's going to take a lot more work, a lot more time to address the roots. But when you address the roots, the dandelions start coming up, don't they? You're always going to have the iceberg principle. What somebody comes to you and presents with, this is what's going on. I feel depressed. You've got to just know ahead of time, okay, there's a bunch of stuff going on underneath the surface. Because what is depression? It's a temptation. It's not a sin to be depressed. Some people are going to de be depressed until the day Jesus comes. That maybe it's a hormonal issue. Maybe they are, you know, they have a biological issue that prevents them from sleeping at night. Whatever it is. Depression may be an organic problem. It may not be. You can help them with lifestyle. Get your exercise. Drink fresh water. You know, get to bed on time. Whatever. Those are all useful things. They may or may not get rid of the depression. But depression is a temptation to think in unbiblical ways. It makes it more likely that I'm going to think God doesn't love me. I'm not worth anything. I don't do everything right. Whatever it is, depression is a temptation to think unbiblically. Anxiety is also a temptation to think unbiblically. I've got to take care of things. What if, what if, what if? It's a temptation. There's no sin in being tempted. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Right. Do not tell people the reason you're depressed is because you're sinning. This is not going to be helpful. However, you may have to help them come to the point where they realize you are making your depression much worse by your sins. It may be because of your intemperance. It may be because of the way that you are thinking. Whatever it is, depression may or may not go away, but you probably can help them significantly to break free from it. How do we help people break free? I'm going to finish with this. When you have someone come to you needing biblical counseling, listen to them. Listen to them well. Ask them good questions. Find out what their struggle is. Pray with them. Never underestimate the power of prayer. When I pray, I find the Lord gives me wisdom to ask the questions I never would have thought of asking to the person, and then we uncover the real root issues. Pray for God to give you discernment. The same God who gave Solomon wisdom in answer to prayer will give it to you. Help identify their root issues of love, worth, and worship. It's fine to help them pick the dandelions. Okay, I'm going to help you plan out what your menu is going to be this week. You can eat healthfully. I'll give you a cooking class. I'm going to call you every day and pray with you so that you don't go back to smoking. These are all great things to do. But help them get to the issues of roots, the love and worth and worship, and you will find them having consistent victory. Share the truth in love. 
you need to find out how you can help people. Sometimes you'll need to do a lot more studying so you know which truths apply to their lives. Share truth in love. Nothing makes a difference to people like having someone who actually reflects the character of God to them. You know, God could have made us all hatch out of eggs in the woods and just look to him for support, right? Instead of putting us in families and in networks of relationships and churches that are messy with people who are sinners, he put us into relationships with sinners who mess up our picture of the character of God sometimes because it's still better than having us just look to him with nobody else to love. When he put Adam in the Garden of Eden by himself, he said, it's not good. He needs a relationship, even with a sinner who was going to lead Adam into sin. God wants us to learn about relationships, and he teaches us through relationships with other people. I challenge you to find anybody out there who has not been drawn to Christ through relationships with others. You know, there, there are people who have found a Bible in a cave, and that's how they started coming to Christ, right? We all know that. <laughs> But they're pretty rare. And even people who have been in that situation, they have been taught about love by their parents, by other people. Even secular people in their lives have reflected to them the character of God. The most powerful thing you can do for people is to reflect the character of God to them by the way that you relate to them while preaching to them the scriptures that give them the power to believe in a God who loves them the way that you do. Let his love flow through you. Then you can speak the truth in love, and God will give you a word in season to speak to those that are weary. And finally, just a warning, be a brace, not an elevator. People who have been abused or who have been through damaging relationships love to wrap their arms, legs, and tail around you and make you the reason why they live. They want you to be God for them. Remember that? Everybody always wants to either be God for everybody else, no, I'm strong, I'm fine, I don't need anybody, or to be God to somebody you know, else, but to make somebody else be God for them, right? You don't want to fall into that. Help the person stay at arm's length. Sometimes you'll need to not answer your phone constantly when they are continually reaching out to you. Let them know, it's Christ that I'm helping you connect with. You reach your hand up to the hand of Christ, you reach your hand down to that person, and you bring them together. You're going to have to do that a lot of times before the person really connects deeply enough with God that they can go on without your support. But you can help them. You help hold their wrist. You help them come to Christ. You bring them to him. You keep bringing them to him. You keep reminding them of the word of God rather than you as the foundation of their faith. And you will see life transformation happen very often. Um, I'm going to finish now with a word of prayer, but I have a list of resources up here for anybody who wants to come up and copy down some of the books and other things that are available. Well, thank you all so much for your time. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that all good things come from you and that you're willing to work with even sinful mortals like us and transform us into your image by your great law of love. Lord, we pray that you will help each one of us to go out from here to be a blessing, to be a light, and to continue drinking more deeply from your fountain. Thank you so much. We love you. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.